EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Olia Jordanian, an EU Futures Project Coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is February 10th. Harry van der Kampalons, a Marie Curie Fellow at Boston University, my colleague Toria Rainey, and I talked to Eric Jones, a professor of European Studies and International Political Economy at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and Senior Research Fellow at Oxford University. Hi, I'm Eric Jones, and I'm Professor of European Studies and International Political Economy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. What is the future emerging in the European Union? Wow, the future emerging. I, I, I think right now they're struggling with the present. The, the future as yet is not entirely clear. They keep trying to come up with a vision, but they're not, not certain whether they can move beyond a series of projects. So if you were to ask me where I see Europe in the future, I'd say I'd see it spending a lot of time trying to do projects, but not really knowing why all these projects fit together or how. Why do you think that is happening in the European Union right now? I don't think they really agree on what Europe is for. I don't, I'm, I'm not quite sure they really agree on who's in Europe. I mean, Europe as a, as a category of practice, right? People say... I'm European, I think everybody's willing to respect that, but but when the Dutch say, I'm European, I don't think they really imagine a Europe that includes all of the other people who would say, I'm European at the same time. I, I think that was always the case in the past, I just think it's become much more glaring now. And certainly that was a problem in the context of the, the British referendum. Until we can sort that out, who's European, who deserves to be in the club. Uh, I think it's going to be very difficult for them to come up with a coherent image of what the club is supposed to do and why. In one of your recent opinion pieces, you talked about the rise of populism and uh, that it actually poses a threat to the European to the to European identity. So, can you please explain a little bit what you mean exactly by saying that? So we all have lots of identities at the same time. I'm, I'm, I have a Texas identity and a Mississippi identity and a male identity and a balding identity. So I've got, I've, I've got all these different identities at once, and I think everybody is that way. The thing about populists is that populists take advantage of the fact that you have all these identities, and they try to mobilize people around these identities in an exclusive manner. And, and if, you, if you think about the impact that has on discourse, on, on belonging, it's actually quite quite powerful. So if you take a populist, a, a good one uh, would be somebody like Pimfortown, right? So, so he's dead now, but, but back when he was active, everybody looked at him from outside the Netherlands and said, oh, this guy's a right-wing xenophobe because he hates Islam and all the rest. Inside the Netherlands, they would never have said that. They, they would have said, look, this guy's openly homosexual. He believes in alternative lifestyles. He has a very inclusive conception of, of you know, what Dutch identity is. But he actually has a very strong conception of what Dutch culture is and what's not Dutch culture. Okay, fair enough. You know, In that context, how is he going to get people to believe in this Dutch culture? And what he did was actually begin to use patterns of discourse that in the Netherlands would never have been tolerated beforehand, but now have become commonplace. And the guy who inherited 
his legacy, this guy Heert Wilders, who's likely to emerge as at the top of the largest political party in the Netherlands when they go to the polls on the 15th of March. Um, this guy, Gerard Wilders, has used the new freedom to say un previously unacceptable things. He's used that new freedom to mobilize people even more aggressively against foreigners and all the rest. I mean, a you know, perfect example would be the, the crazy referendum they had in the Netherlands last April where they they had 30.6% of the population come out and vote, 60% uh, of whom said that they didn't like the European Union's deep and comprehensive trading relationship with Ukraine. Now, in that kind of a context, if you imagine not just Gerard Wilders and, and, and Nigel Farage, but also Marine Le Pen and Heinz Christian Strache and, and Beppe Grillo, th these guys are all different for a variety of different reasons, but they're all using identity-based political mobilization in an exclusive manner. And, and as they do that, they destroy any sense of commonality in Europe, which is, I think, very dangerous for, for European identity and also dangerous for the willingness of people to participate in the European project. I mean, you know, what is the one thing all those groups have in common? The, the one thing they have in common is not that they hate foreigners and it's not that they're racist and it's not that they have a particular economic program. The one thing that they have in common is that they're taking advantage of the existence of the European Union to say, those guys aren't us, they're telling us what to do, and we need to get away from them. I think that's a terrible thing for Europe. How would you assess the current state of democracy in, at the EU level? At the, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, the first thing we would have to agree is that there is some democracy at the EU level. I'm not quite sure there is democracy at the EU level. I know that there's a European Parliament and people vote for the European Parliament and I don't want to dismiss the very good work that, that members of European Parliament do. But I don't think that the people who vote for the European Parliament vote for the European parliamentarians based on the work that they do. I don't think they even understand the work that they do or how it connects to a broader picture. And so it's hard for me to come up with a model of democracy that says that the fact that they cast a ballot to pick somebody to go and do some job they don't understand is a legitimating force in the same level that democracy is legitimating in national politics. If we don't believe that Europe is a democracy, then the, then the real question is, how is democracy doing at the national state level? And I think the answer is it's not doing very well. I, I think we could point to a couple of problem cases. Hungary would be one, Poland would be another that everybody likes to point at. But, but I'm not quite sure the problem cases are really the best, best barometers of the health of European democracy. I would point to the fact that in, in Germany right now, the best we can hope for out of the upcoming elections is you either vote red or you vote black and you get red-black, right? I mean, that's the best you can hope for. If you don't vote for one of those two parties, then you don't get anything, right? That's not a great political situation. In Italy right now, the democratic forces can't even agree on an electoral system or on how electoral systems should be modified. I don't think that's very healthy. In, in, in France, the two leading candidates now left standing, if we assume that Fillon is, is somehow irretrievably damaged by the scandal around the payment of his wife and children, um, the two candidates left standing are the two people that disintermediated traditional political parties. One, the Front National, which has always been in kind of an anti-system group, and the other, uh, Emmanuel Macron, who is... Uh, basically stepped out of the Socialist Party to run for his first ever election, imagining this whole new movement. 
and that, that, that doesn't look healthy to me and we haven't even talked about what's going on in places like Portugal and Spain and Greece and all the rest. To what extent do you think this is also to do with uh, the power of the parties and that they are disintegrating in many states in Europe? Well, I think that I think it has a lot to do with that. Uh, you know, it, but the problem is it's a real chicken and egg type thing. I mean, what we know is that European democracy was built around the existence of strong political parties and that without strong political parties, it's actually quite difficult to make parliamentary government function adequately. We know that that's a problem, but 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 why political parties have weakened is not immediately obvious. But but the fact that political parties have weakened have certainly weakened democratic institutions in their function, and and the unwillingness of people to to work with political parties or to engage in political parties, the 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 eagerness with which they disintermediate political parties, I think are all bad bad signs in terms of healthy democratic performance. I mean, the project that we just finished was on dysfunctional democracy, so it's, uh, it's an abiding concern. How would you assess the citizens' participation in democracy in Europe right now? Do you think that other than voting, there are things that citizens are actually doing? What do you think that they could do better? I think you're asking actually a really interesting question. Let me think about that. I mean, in, in, in terms of Voting, what we know is that, that levels of turnout are actually pretty high in a lot of these countries. I mean, I think the expectation in, in the French presidential elections is a turnout of about 80%. usually fluctuates between 80 and 84% in French presidential elections. That's, that's pretty high. So I think people are doing their civic duty in that respect. I think the way they do their civic duty is very different now than it used to be in the past. If you look at electoral volatility, net vote change from one election to the next, what you'll see is there's an enormous amount of volatility. Their willingness to, to throw support behind movements that either have no chance of winning or, or seem determined to implode the political system also raises some concern. If I look at the, the support for the five-star movement in Italy, for example, I'm always a little bit apprehensive because it seems as though the movement is determined to explode the political system and refuses to participate in the normal coalition building that makes parliamentary government function adequately, for example. But but your question was bigger than that and much more interesting because it's not just about voting. It's about you know what people are supposed to do to make democracy function between elections. That's a problem that that I think we we probably need to think more about. I'm not quite sure that popular protest is is the way to go. Also, because I'm I'm quite aware of the extent to which cynicism emerges around protests that don't achieve anything except getting people out into the street. So I'm not I'm not convinced that that's you know writing to your member of parliament that kind of thing. I mean. I suppose it passes the time, but I'm not quite sure it really strengthens the institutions. I don't know. I'm going to have to give that more thought. I think it's a really excellent question. Do you want to ask anything about the transatlantic relations? Oh, well, well perhaps um, like the transatlantic trade and investment partnership, the negotiations were ongoing until last year. I think Trump hasn't said very much specific on it because he talked more about the agreement with Asia, which he is not going to uh, honor, I think. Do you believe there's any future for these negotiations now that he is in power? I, I mean, let's be honest. The Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, when it, when it started originally, had tremendous promise. Coming out of the high-level working group on 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 jobs and employment or jobs and growth, mm -hmm. um, 
it identified a series of low-hanging fruit that we could do in terms of regulatory coordination that should have improved the performance of these large multinationals that really drive the transatlantic economy and also created access for small and medium-sized enterprises. So I think we could have done a lot of stuff. There were there were always issues that were going to be problematic. Uh, sanitary and phytosanitary standards are always problematic. These are the things that, that get characterized in the popular media as chlorine chicken or... We have problematic issues surrounding genetically modified organisms, and so we know that that's going to be a problem. I think we were a little bit surprised by the, the controversy that emerged around uh, investor state dispute settlement mechanisms, uh, arbitration courts that make it possible for firms essentially to escape national legal jurisdictions if they get into conflict, which almost never happens with national governments. But as this has trundled forward, it's it's become a mobilization point. I mean, I, I think you saw the the mobilization potential in the recent ratification of the Canada-Europe trade agreement, CETA, and the fact that Paul Magnette, as the minister president of of Wallonia, decided to use this as a as a kind of a standout issue to mobilize support against globalization, suggests that TTIP was going to run into serious problems. Whoever won. The U.S. presidential election. The fact that the guy who won the U.S. presidential election doesn't believe in distributed manufacturing, doesn't believe in regulatory coordination, right? Um, I, uh, if TTIP isn't dead, it's only because it doesn't know it yet. And, and, and you know, probably the best illustration of that would be Patrick McHenry's uh, extraordinary letter to Janet Yellen as, as chairman of the Fed, where he basically told her that un, until... We have a clear expression of the administration's ambitions. The Federal Reserve should not negotiate international financial standards at any of the international standards fora in which it participates. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. But obviously, that's the will of the administration. It would be much more binding on the U.S. trade representative than it is on, on the chairman of the Fed. So I think... I think at the end of the day, if if TTIP wasn't dead already, and I'm not quite convinced it was all that healthy, mm-hmm. uh, it's certainly dead now. This is kind of a, an out-of-the-box question, so get ready. Um, if you were given a platform to reach either the EU community or the global community, what would your call to arms be to kind of fix the current crises that you see the EU is facing? Well, I think, you know, in, in, in my own very small way, I've been trying to encourage Europe's heads of state and government to come up with a vision that people can believe in. And I don't pretend to have a monopoly on what is the true vision of Europe, and I don't pretend to be European, right? I'm, you can tell from my accent, I ain't from there. So, the the need for a vision, though, I think is one that they have to recognize. You can't coordinate people if you don't give them a common objective. If you were to read into systems theory, for example, the, the function or purpose of a system is the most powerful leverage point that you can exercise over its operation. And so if you want Europe to improve, you're going to have to create a vision that people can believe in. I think there is a vision. I think you create a vision of equality of opportunity that said that, look, member states join European integration in order not to fail. They join European integration in order to become the best at whatever it is they do, the best that they can, which is the old liberal ambition and equality of opportunity. 
And we have to figure out some way to build the safety nets that allow countries to achieve that goal and also to create the flexibility that allow them to specialize in whatever they choose to pursue. And, and if you were to look at the history of European integration, you would see that that kind of flexibility is in there. If you look at the context that we're getting now in the multi-speed Europe that they're suggesting, there's a potential for flexibility. But, but whether they can articulate this in a compelling way, I think it's the real open question. They're reluctant to do that. Every time I talk to a European leader, they, they're very happy to... to, to Quote Helmut Schmidt, who says, you know, people who say they have visions should go see a doctor. Um, I, <clears throat> I, I think that's a misguided, easy comment to make. And, and if they don't have a vision, then they shouldn't be surprised if a superior vision challenges Europe. And, and the superior vision is nationalism. If you think about it, it's very easy to articulate. It's quite compelling helps people better to understand why they're doing what they're doing when they're doing, makes them willing to sacrifice in an incredible way. And yet European integration was created to tame nationalism, not to be overwhelmed by it. So if we can't tell a story about Europe that says, yes, you can be nationalist, but you can also be better than that, then I think Europe is finished. What kind of Europe would you like to see in the future? Well, I like the one that exists right now. I just wish it worked a little bit better. And, and uh, you know, I'm a big, big believer in European integration. I love the diversity. I think some of the technical projects that they've come up with are actually quite extraordinary. People don't sing the praises of the single currency often enough. And they don't even understand the virtues of Target 2, which is the real-time gross payment system that connects the central banks. It's really quite an extraordinary beastie. And, and so I, I, would, I would love for people to, to see it as beautifully as I see it, right? And to believe in it with that kind of passion. But I think you have to help people. You have to, you have to make the argument. And you have to accept the fact that they're probably going to disagree to a certain extent. I don't think we've had that, that debate in a, in a kind of a meaningful fashion. Ironically, a generous reading of the Bloomberg speech that David Cameron gave in February 2013, the speech that launched this whole referendum campaign. A generous read of that speech would say, you know, that speech, A, is a very articulate description of how European integration functions, and B, it's a very powerful call to arms. We have to have a debate because we can't avoid it. Uh, it ended terribly, but but I think we have to have that conversation. I think I think Cameron was not wrong in that respect. I just wish it hadn't played out as it has. Thank you so much. Is there anything we didn't ask you about, but you would like to say here? <laughs> <Sure. laughs> I mean, there, there are tons of things, right? Uh, you know, unfortunately, Europe is, is facing so many challenges right now. And I think the, the, the biggest challenge that Europe faces is uh, the challenge of dealing with Europe's neighbors. You know, we could talk about the challenge of dealing with Russia, challenge of dealing with Turkey, challenge of dealing with North Africa, um, the whole migration issue. I, I, you know, these are, these are really serious things. And the problem is, is we've got ourselves in a situation. We Europeans have gotten themselves in a situation ever since the Maastricht Treaty, about every four to five years, they have another big soul-searching institutional reform conversation like the one we're having right now. Those conversations don't seem to be leading anywhere, and they certainly aren't generating the kind of capacity that's required to make Europe a force of good in the world. I mean, it always strikes me 
when you look at, at the, the eagerness with which the literature about normative power Europe, Ian Manners' piece, or, or civilian power Europe, Hans Mahl's work, um, the, you know, the, the eagerness with which people embrace those concepts and, and the fact that those concepts actually never came, became the reality that we would have anticipated, right? Um, I think Europe needs to pull itself together, needs to come up with a compelling vision, needs to get over this teething pain that it's going through right now. Because if Europe is not a source of good in the world, if it's not a source of world order, it's too much to ask of the United States. And, and, you know, if you ask too much of the United States, then you end up in a situation like we're in right now, where the United States is the lonely superpower that then becomes completely schizophrenic. I think if we don't have Europe play a more positive role, then we have to accept that it's going to overload other parts of the world as well. Thank you so much for this interesting conversation. Oh, no, thank you. It was lovely to be with you. Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C. 